And uh, we're continuing our series on the family, families that flourish. And I just have myself here to begin with today. And I know that probably the thing you've enjoyed most about this series of the last couple of weeks have been my uh, collaborators. Um, but uh, I'm going to invite, actually, at the end of my talk today, to have Kyla and Aaron are going to come back up here and we're going to do a little QA. All right? So we did that with texting. Uh, the first week of this series, uh, we're going to do it like confrontationally today. So you get to have a microphone and ask us anything you want to about the family, about uh, families that flourish. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, I had Kyla up here and we talked, uh, you know, we, we admitted right off the bat that we don't know everything. We don't have all this figured out by any means uh, but we talked about some of the ways that, that we have found some biblical principles to be at play in our lives and in our family in particular and some ways that are helping our family to flourish, we think. And uh, it's, it's not always working the way that you draw it up, but um, some ways that we think are helping uh, us to flourish as a family. We talked about such things as kindness and respect and honesty and forgiveness and these things that just play an important part in the life of a family. Uh, we, we talked about how these things help to create healthy relationships and dynamics uh, within a family, both Im- immediate family and extended family. So I hope, again, that as we've, you've heard us talk about the family, you're not simply thinking about what my family looks like necessarily, but what your extended family networks and relationships are, because we all find ourselves in one of these things, and uh, that's why we're talking about them, because we're, uh, we're a part of one at whatever level that may look like or whatever that dynamic may be. Uh, we've thought it's important to be thinking about these things. Last week, I had Pastor Aaron up here, our resident expert in youth and family culture. <laughs> There he is back there. And, uh, and, and he helped us, really, as we, we talked about this idea of the, the role of the church. And in particular, I mean, even more specifically, the role of faith in, in helping a family to flourish. And we talked about things, about ways that we can help faith stick. Remember, we talked about sticky faith, and we heard Aaron talk about how uh, there's, it's a five-to-one ratio, five adults per every child or teenager needed to pour into that uh, young person's life to help faith to stick, but how a parent's role is particularly significant and the important part that a, a parent plays not only in talking about faith, but in demonstrating faith. And one uh, writer around the idea of sticky faith, he said something like, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to kids, parents get not what they pray for necessarily or what they hope for, but largely parents get what they are, uh, according to the Sticky Faith research. So we need to be thinking about that, parents and families. So we talked about what it looks like, along with Joshua, to say, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And then for others who may be in a little bit of a different sort of circumstance in your family life, where that sort of statement might not carry much weight, to say instead, as for me in my family, I will serve the Lord as a way of testimony and witness. So I'm going to have those guys come back up at the end, and we'll talk more about that. That means I need to speak fairly quickly today about what I want to talk about. And uh, as we think about our, this conversation of families that flourish, uh, I want to talk about something that really is at the heart of families that flourish. It's what makes the world go round. It's uh, what keeps it all together. It's what... Uh, the family has everything to do with its love. And uh, on this February 14th, this Valentine's Day, Michelle gave us a great intro to that at the, at the beginning of the service this morning. Uh, we want to think together today about the significance of love within our family systems. And not just any sort of kind of nice, feely, touchy-feely love, chocolates and flowers and things like that. Aaron, totally, you know, off the hook today. Um, with Paige out of town. Uh, not, that, not just that kind of love, but, but a love that, that is, is biblical, a love that's godly, a love that is, is deep and significant and meaningful. So we want to talk about the, the, the primacy of love, and we want to talk about the practice of love. We know 
That love is important at some level, and, and you hear pastors, and you hear the word in church all the time, and it just almost begins to mean nothing to us if we're not careful. We know it's important in our families. We know it's important in our marriages. We know that love is significant in a relationship between siblings even, or between parents and children, uh, between, again, brothers and sisters. We know that we are to love one another, and we know that this love must be Again, more than words, I'm just thinking of all these songs that, that are, speak about love. We know that it's supposed to be more than words, that it must be lived out in daily interactions and conversations in, in our families. It isn't something we know at the core of our hearts. We know that this love isn't something to be uh, assumed or sort of taken for granted, and yet, if we're not careful, that's the mode that we can so easily slip into, especially as we think about the, the relationships within our families. We begin to just sort of take them for granted or we assume that, that love. And maybe we even say the words, I love you, to one another in our families, but, but the meaning perhaps isn't as significant. We know that love needs to be cultivated. We know that it needs to be nurtured. But we're not always sure how to do that. So we want to think about that this morning. And I want us to reflect on a very famous and well-known passage of Scripture to give us guidance uh, around this uh, subject today, Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that can help us to think about the priority of love. First of all, as the Apostle Paul wrote these words in the church, he wrote these words to a church, not just any church, but a church that was struggling, that had been through a lot of issues, a lot of division in in this church, a lot of of uh, brokenness. They were in need of, of repentance. They were in need of healing. They were in need of a new start. And so the Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 13. We'll look at it in just a moment. They're, they're perhaps, some have called them Paul's finest moment, the, the pinnacle of his, his writing career, the, the words that flowed off from the inspiration of God and into his heart and off of his his tongue, and through the, 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 the written word as well. Paul writes about agape love, unconditional, selfless love that he had come face to face with in the risen Christ Jesus. Jesus is never mentioned in these words, as you'll see from 1 Corinthians 13, but the, the life of Jesus and the love of God expressed in Jesus are as you can hear, as you'll hear, behind every word. It's like Jesus is just hovering over this passage. And you can imagine as Paul penned these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that, that no doubt he was thinking about the very love that had gripped his life as Jesus encountered him and his, and his life of opposing the church with such great love and the shaping of God's love that had taken place in his life. So um, we want to receive these words today that we'll read in just a moment, not only as words for the church, but I hope that we can make a fair and accurate translation of these words to our families as well. And I think it's an appropriate interpretation that we can look at as we study uh, God's Word. So let's look at these words together. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 7. If I could speak Paul writes, all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
One commentator, in writing about these words, he said this, to comment on the parts of this portion of Scripture is a bit like giving a botany lecture on a beautiful flower. It is a beautiful flower, and for a botanist to stand back and describe to you all the intricate scientific parts of that, it's, it's, it's caref- it, we have to be careful that we don't lose the beauty and the impact of this passage of Scripture by dissecting it too carefully. And yet there's some wonderful things that we can learn about ourselves, about the church, about our families as we dig into some of the words that Paul has has written here. The first thing Paul wants his readers here to be aware of is concerning the primacy of love. And it's really those first three verses uh, within uh, this, this chapter. The, the primacy, the, the, the first place-ness of love, the priority, the superiority of love within a, a, a follower of Christ, within the life of the community of faith. Essentially, if you're not familiar with the, the context, essentially what was going on here in Corinth that, that this church to whom Paul was writing was that they were emphasizing some, some good things, the gifts of the Spirit. They, they were learning and experiencing the giftedness of the Holy Spirit, and they were emphasizing these things, but they were emphasizing them too much. And they were elevating the gifts of the Spirit over love. And Paul wants to make sure that, that, that that they and we are careful not to elevate anything, really, within the Christian faith, anything that could seem like even a good thing, that we're very careful to never to elevate that over the primacy of love, the place of love in our lives and in our relationships, the spiritual gifts that he speaks of, speaking in tongues, prophecy or speaking for God, wisdom and knowledge and faith, all very impressive stuff. And it's not as if Paul is saying, get rid of those things. By no means. These are the gifts of the Spirit, and we are to, to live into these things. Even in today's church, we are to live into the giftedness of the Spirit, but, but not to, to somehow elevate them that the, those gifts are lived outside of the context of love. Love is sort of this basket that holds all of these gifts in, in their proper place. In fact, they were used, the, the gifts... They were using the gifts to build up themselves. They were using the gifts to sort of gain power or notoriety or influence within the church. And Paul wants them to, to, to begin to portray love as that ultimate, ultimate expression of the Christian faith. To insist that a heart of love would always remain in first place. That the gifts of the Spirit would always flow first and foremost from an attitude and an atmosphere of love. Not that we wouldn't celebrate the giftedness of God's people, but that God's people would first of all be gifted with love. This is what Paul's writing about. And so we might say it like this, that in the church, and we're going to go on to say in the family, we must always make sure that love wins. Love always wins out. And there it is. This is the name of a book a few years ago. Rob Bell wrote it, and it was very controversial. I don't want you to lose sight of this phrase by thinking of that book too much right now. But, but I want us just to be thoughtful of this idea that whenever we pit anything against one another in the church, activity or, or faith or giftedness, love always is supreme. Love always gets first place. Love always wins according to Scripture, and so too in our families it isn't just a nice poem, this 1 Corinthians 13, to be written on Christian Valentine's Day cards. I always love the Christian version of holiday cards, don't you? Um, it's not just a nice poem. It's not just nice things to be written on and hung on the wall. These are, these are words to be lived out in our lives on a daily basis. It's a proclamation of the primacy of love in the life of a Christian. Love comes First, Paul even goes on to say, if, uh, out of all these things, if we have missed love, we've missed the point entirely. I don't know how I can say it any more clearly. He says it, if I, uh, this little passage of scripture at the, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, if I didn't, let's read this together. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. All these things, all these things. The easiest way, perhaps, to, to uh, apply this into uh, 
our family lives, to sort of move this situation from Corinth to Santa Barbara uh, and in our day and in our homes and in our families, is simply to give this situation new expression in, in terms of the things that we would think are spiritually significant in our lives and in our world. For, for these Corinthian people, it was the spiritual gifts, and this is what they were emphasizing. It was rising above love. For us, what are the things that we consider spiritually significant in, in our families? And I came up with a few. This is probably from my own family growing up and a little bit from my family even today. It might sound something like this. If our family goes to church every Sunday and Wednesday night when the doors are open, but we don't have love for one another and for the world. If our family prays together before every stinking meal, I mean, there's not, and we pray before we go to bed at night, and we pray when we get up, and we have devotions together two, three times a week, and we act out the Bible stories, and we do it all. That was my family growing up. If we do all these things, we don't love one another. If our family serves together, we go down to the rescue mission and we hand out clothes and we serve meals. If we sponsor a child and we bring aluminum cans and plastic bottles to church so that the church can sponsor a child, if we give life to those who need it most but we don't love one another. And our, our home is not shaped by and living into the love of God. Then we gain nothing. Personally, I might, I might say it like this. If I read my Bible every day, but I don't love my wife, if I give an offering every week, but I exasperate my children if I love and am kind, actually, and generous with perfect strangers, but am short-tempered and mean with those who are the closest to me in my home, I've gained nothing. Does this make sense a little bit? It's a little bit too personal. <laughs> All of these great things that we might do as a family, as an individual, Paul says, are for naught unless we've first discovered a heart of love. Love always wins. So what does love look like? This is the next part of the, next part of the, the passage here. We've talked about the primacy of love. Now Paul goes on to talk about the practice of love, verses 4 through 7. And you can see it. Any, any uh, People have counted. There's 15 directions here, 15 things that love is, and most of them is, are what love is not. <laughs> And scholars look at what Paul has written here in terms of describing what love looks like, and they've noted that a majority of the things that Paul writes about here are things that the Corinthians were doing wrong. And so over and over, he lists things that, that he has written about earlier in the book, in the letter, describing problems that are going on in the church. And now he's saying, love is not that. Love is not that. Remember what I talked to you about back in chapter 2? Love isn't that. And he begins, even though in the sort of negative expression of what love is not, he begins in these verses to construct uh, a pattern, a paradigm for what love is, a model for what we as individuals and we as a church and we as families may begin to live into in terms of what love looks like. What is it, uh, how does it take shape? Uh, another phrase that we might add to this one is an, another book titled by a guy named Bob Goff. That some of you have read this book. It's just titled Love Does. And when we talk about the practice of love, Paul wants to make it very clear that love is not just is. That's bad English, I know. But love isn't is. It, love does. Love isn't just something to be admired on the, on the shelf. It's not just a nice concept or a wonderful idea that we might sort of gather around and just 
pay homage to. Love is an action. Love is something to do. Love takes form. Love does. It's the kind of love ultimately that makes a family flourish. It's the kind of love that isn't assumed, that isn't taken for granted. It's the kind of love that is not just spoken, but is acted out in very tangible and practical ways each day as we live in a relationship together. A a few, I'm not going to go through all 15, glory be to God, but I do want to just draw out a couple, three actually, that just seem to resonate so much with family life, at least in my life, maybe in yours as well. First one that caught my idea is when Paul said that love does not demand its own way. Doesn't demanding your own way pretty much describe most of your life within your family? (laughs) Okay, I'll point the finger back at me. It just describes me then. It just, it comes so naturally to demand my own way. It just, it's when, when my instinct comes out, that's, that's what it is. And uh, it, it, just, it just flows so well to demand your own way. It, why? Because it makes such good sense. It's my way. If I didn't like it, it wouldn't be my way. And when it's my way, I think it is the right way. And so I ought to demand that way. And we get into these, these sort of ways of rationalizing or justifying this demanding of my own way. Um, I, I thought about this in terms of uh, some phrases, and one of them that, that jumped out was, you know, this is what we think is best. It's what we think is best for our family. Yeah, that's demanding my own way. <laughs> if you pull, peel back the, the layers on that. And I just thought, you know, we just keep, but how our demands, though, just keep butting heads with the demands of others. Because in any family system, and I'm not just talking about within a home, by all means, but as we get older and, and as you begin to discover the, the dynamics that are much more challenging, perhaps, in family systems and parents with older children, of which I am one now, I mean, these are, these are everybody has a good way. Everybody's thought through their way. Everybody has begun to get ingrained in their way. You ever notice that? And so to to somehow break from the demand of my way and make room for another's way within the family is perhaps one of the most beautiful and descriptive acts of this selfless, agape, unconditional love that we could ever see. It's not necessarily just a a lying down or becoming a patsy, but it's opening our hearts and our minds to that other person's way in a way that we had never thought before. How much hurt and division happens in churches and in families because we demand our own way? Um, How much hurt and devastation happens in our own lives when we sulk and when we Uh, grow bitter when we lash out. One writer said, the secret of every discord, and I'm not sure this is an overstatement, the secret of every discord in Christian homes, communities, and churches is that we seek our own way and our own glory. What does it look like to set that aside? Paul says that selfless, selfless, unconditional love, the love we see in Jesus is not selfish. It doesn't demand its rights. Where are we learning to lay down our demands? My sister's not here. We had a night, she's there out of town this week. We had an, a nice um, childhood together. I, probably a great opportunity to tell some stories, but I won't do that. Um, if you want to ask a question later about how your family life was growing up, then I'd, feel, I'd be happy to answer. Um, but brothers and sisters, uh, even in this room here this morning, what does it look like to... Set aside your demands. Husbands and wives, parents and children, where can we give up our rights for the other's good? Love does not demand its own way. Another one that that struck me was this. uh, The love keeps, Paul wrote, love keeps no record of being wronged. I think this this is obviously a very significant factor within 
church life, uh, and it's so important, uh, such a helpful and, and necessary way of, of, of loving. This is what love looks like. If you're wondering, again, it doesn't demand our own way, and it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. This, Paul uses a, an accounting term. Those of you who are financial wizards and accountants, this is a, a Greek word that, that speaks of numerical calculation, and it's used in other places in Scripture where it, uh, he talks about God not counting our sins against us. And, and that's such a beautiful idea, that God is not, you know, filling up the, the, the credits, I guess. I'm obviously not an accountant with, with our sin. He's not filling up the ledger with our sin, that, that because of what Jesus has done for us, our slate is wiped clean. And, and so Paul now goes on to apply it in a different way. We then are not to be keeping track or filling up the ledger with the sins and the, the hurts of those who have, have acted towards us. We're not to be keeping track. We're not to be keeping a tally of the wrongs and bearing that grudge and holding that resentment until every single last check mark is erased. Love doesn't try to gain the upper hand either by reminding people of their past wrongs. Love forgives. I read a little story of a married man who said to his friend, you know, every time my wife and I get into a conflict, she gets historical. His friend said, historical, don't you mean hysterical? No, I mean historical. She rehearses every wrong thing that I have ever done, brings it back to light for me to be reminded of. How often with our family members do we like to get historical? Do we like to live in that past and what they have done to us? And how debilitating and restrictive and confining that is to any family and any individual and any church moving forward in, in life. I'm not saying just to like, act like nothing ever happened. It's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about that forgiveness that Michelle spoke of earlier that cost God the very life of his own son. That, that, that forgiveness that comes at great cost to Jesus. Forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. And so when we forgive others, that is, that is a, a, an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. It comes because we have been forgiven ourselves. It all starts because of the love of God that's been expressed to us through Jesus. But to, to, in a sense, to hold on to and to keep record of being wrong, to get historical time and time again, is to, is to neglect and to even negate the work of Jesus for us in forgiveness. Love keeps no record of being wrong. Here's the last one that struck out to me, love endures through every circumstance. There's so many other good ones, and I hope that you'll just hold on to this passage for your own life and family. But the word endurance just stuck with me as I thought about family living in the world today. Again, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here is a military term. And it was used in military circumstances to speak of sustaining the assault of an enemy, enduring the constant assault of an enemy. It has the idea of, of holding up under trial. And I don't want to take it too far. I don't think Paul was talking about people in the church are our enemies or people in our family are our enemies by any means. But it does make me think that he wants us to think of this as being just sustaining, holding on in the midst of a very difficult trial. To endure through every circumstance means that love holds on and love hangs on and love perseveres. Love isn't the sort of passive, stoic attitude. It's a positive, triumphant spirit that sticks it out no matter what. And, and as you know, um, Christians are not immune to not enduring. <laughs> in, in fact, if you think about 
church life, Christians are some of the, sometimes some of the least enduring people around. The, the way we kind of bail out on certain circumstances, maybe in church life when it gets difficult, it gets hard. Relationships are funny, words are spoken, personalities collide. And instead of enduring and persevering and loving, we've developed a culture of just simply shifting seats in other churches and congregations. Even in marriages and in, in families, the statistics are not terribly encouraging about the difference that the Christian faith makes in um, avoiding divorce and broken marriages. Christians run into problems. Christians run into disagreements. Christian couples have conflict. Christians make bad decisions. Have you ever made one? I made a few. Christians do things that can bring great hurt to those in their lives and in their families. It's hard work. But the love of God in our hearts and our lives is that which can help us and should help us to endure through every circumstance. The King Jesus who reigns in our hearts and in our communities is to reign in our families as well. Comedian said about love, love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for years that it becomes a miracle. I like that. Love at first sight, piece of cake. It's when you've been waking up for a long time and looking at each other and... and uh, and your kids, they're just still there. They're just there. They didn't, they didn't go away. They're, they're back. And, and even when they're like 30, they're back. And I'm 40-something, 40 45, and they're, I'm back. And, and, and the years and the family. And for love to endure is nothing short of miraculous. But it's not a, like an un, unattainable miracle, a very reachable miracle, because it's the miracle of the love of God that reaches deep into our hearts and does something new and does something beautiful in us. It's the result of a life, it's so easy to speak of, but so hard to live, but it's the result of a life that's yielded to this loving God that just simply says, I... I know who I am, and I know who my family is, and I deeply, deeply need you to help me to be a loving presence and a loving influence in that family. It's the only way. It's the only way that love will penetrate our hearts and penetrate our homes and our families when we truly let God love us. So before you start praying for your family, before you even start praying for God to make you a more loving influence in your home before you start praying for love to conquer all, <laughs> I encourage you to pray that God would, you, you would sense, have a fresh sense of God's love for you. Have a fresh sense of the depth of what God has done for you. Love wins in Scripture and love does in Jesus. And it's when we receive that, that then we can hope to be a loving presence as well. Another little story that I read about love this week, it was a, a legend, I don't know the veracity of this, but a legend that the old Apostle John, the, the one whom Jesus loved, the, the, the one who wrote about love, especially in his little letters, 1 John, if you read that, is so centered on love. In fact, I've got a passage up there, I think. Do I have a passage from 1 John? Dear children, this is the John that wrote this. Let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. 
So the legend says that when he got old, he was so weak that he had to be carried into the church meetings when they would gather. The end of the meeting, he'd be helped to his feet to give a little word of exhortation, and he would invariably repeat these words that are actually found in 1 John. Just simply say, little children, love one another. And the story goes that the disciples of John grew weary of the same words spoken every time, and finally they asked him why he said the same thing over and over, and he replied, because it is the commandment of the Lord and the observation of it alone is sufficient. Love wins. Love does. Amen. Aaron, Kyla, come on up here and uh, think of your questions, people, because if you don't have any, we're going to look really silly (laughs) sitting up here. And Anders, can you come on up here? I'm going to have you be Phil Donahue for those of you who remember him. Just take this microphone, Anders, to anyone who might have a question, okay? And if no one comes up with one, think of something quick. These guys don't have, here, why don't you use, here you go, here you go. Oh, I'm going to go unmute it. Who's got a question? And it could be a question that you asked a few weeks ago. We just have about maybe five or ten minutes we'll do this. Um, It could be a question that you asked a few weeks ago that didn't make it onto the screen. Uh, And and we can revisit that. Maybe it's just a practical family issue. Uh, Maybe it's something about the the church and the life of faith. Um, Maybe it's something about what love looks like or uh, how we move forward uh, in our families, um, families that flourish. Yeah, Buffy. Yeah, why don't you stand up, if, if you don't mind. You don't have to, but. So in this world of Facebook perfection, um, we, we have a lot of experiences now of just seeing everybody talking about how wonderful things are and stuff like that, and I have that experience too of looking at all that wonderfulness. And what would you tell anyone who's struggling with seeing only the perfection and the good to encourage them? Aaron's got a great answer for that. Go ahead. He's our social media, he's our social media expert. Um, I think what I would want to say, and I think this is just about social media in general, but in particular to seeing other families, is that we only ever post the things that we want people to see about us. We we're able to project whatever image that we want. And, and so when I'm you know, going through my Facebook feed for the 75th time of the day, um, I am having to constantly remind myself that um, not everybody is having this much fun all of the time, right? Like that was just a snapshot of a moment. Not everybody's hanging out with friends and I'm sitting in my apartment by myself, you know? And I'd wanna say uh, the same is true about families is that um, we all we all struggle um, and we all face challenges uh, in life and although that's often the image that we project um, that's not the reality that that we always constantly live with and so I think uh, plugging into like a community you know like a growth group and not to just shamelessly plug growth <laughs> groups but that has the potential or the opportunity to connect on that deeper level that more intimate level where you get beyond the images that we're projecting um, and being able to be encouraged by people. Um, Because I I don't think social media, I think we all think, we we all don't think that social media is a fair representation of reality. And so I think connecting with people on that that more intimate level is really helpful in in being encouraging. Like for me, like when I first came up here, I was like, man, I don't like have any friends. I don't hang out with anybody. And then I talk to people and they're like, yeah, we don't really have friends either. I'm like, all right, let's be friends then, right? <laughs> like, then let's hang out. And so it's kind of like fi- finding ways to connect on that, that more real level. I think, I think church can be a version of social media too when you show up and everyone's looking good and dressed How's up. It going? and good? Yeah, good. How are your and kids? Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, it can be, sometimes church can be that real mode of discouragement in terms of seeing what others have or are doing. And, you know, one thing that is maybe true for any situation where we have a sense of, 
of discouragement, or especially in comparison, is to try and celebrate what is happening in the lives of others and to uh, acknowledge that every story is unique and different and to know that God is yet at work. And, you know, you've heard the story, the family stories of both of these folks over the last couple of weeks. And uh, to know that God is, is writing a beautiful story, no matter what the family dynamic. And, and the, the final chapters are yet to be written. We have no idea what that looks like. So the faithful perseverance within that, even as we look around at, at what may appear to be uh, a, a better story. No such thing. Christine, and then Darren had his hand up too. Yeah, um, I need to ask a question. I have a neighbor next door to me that I read devotions at the Salvation Army (coughs) still, and he was sitting there saying, well, I don't believe in God, you know, and I just kind of felt kind of a little fidgety, and I felt like I wanted to lash out and say something, you know. But how would you show love towards that person to make them want to come to believe in Jesus? Kyla has a great answer for that question. <laughs> I love this. Love this. Um, yeah, Christina, find, look for ways that you can appreciate him during the day. You know, rejoice with him on the things that are good in his life. Hurt with him on the things that are bad in his life. Be that actual thing that you are reading today to him without telling him that you read that. Hey, I read that in my Bible, and so I'm going to do that to you. Just do it. Yeah, I mean, just take an opportunity to do the very thing that... Hey, why not? I think it, it speaks a little bit, too, to, the, to, to tie it in with families a little bit, Christine. I think it does speak a little bit to the, the role of the family and mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't touch on that really in these weeks, but I think it's a very significant part of, of every family conversation, uh, of every family's overall conversation. What does it look like to be in mission together as a family? Not only by the things that we sort of do... Uh, evangelistically in terms of serving or sharing, but just the way that we live in relationship together uh, can be a wonderful demonstration of the gospel into the world, a mirror really, or a window would be a better way to say that, through which as people look into a family life to be able to see the grace of God at work. Please stand. <laughs> Come on. So everybody can look I at your back. Stand. Um, this could go to either Aaron or Kylie, either one, actually, having learned your stories. Um, but can you share maybe some strategies you use with either family or friends that aren't of the faith and how you interact with them and how you can still stay true to your faith without offending or. Your turn. Okay. I think really when it comes to my family, um, for me personally, there's that strange dynamic because they're like, oh, pastor. Like my grandma now writes <laughs> on my cards that she sends me, Pastor Aaron. I'm like, grandma, like, you're just, <laughs> you know, I'm just your grandson. Like, I'm a kid that was But I think, I think what I would want to say to that is it's, it's that Sermon on the Mount, you know, um, let your light shine mm. before all men they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know? And I think it's about just being that sort of presence of Christ in the midst of my family system, which is most significant for me. Um, and I think in particular of like my brothers in your question, what does it look like for me? Because they know where I stand, I know where they stand. If, how do we begin to dialogue about this? Or with my, my sister-in-law, you know, like how do we have a conversation about faith and finding opportunities like when when I got married talking about you know marriage and love and why this is significant to me and why this is important um, you know I'm, the angle from which I approach is very different from like my brother and, and his girlfriend and and so I think taking the opportunity when those conversations do arise to to explain you know how we differ in some of our values and how we understand things but I think the biggest thing is just being the presence of Christ to people in the world. Um, in our families, obviously, but 
I think that's kind of the, the witness that I want to have in my life just in general. Um, that answers your question at all. Yeah, I mean, I would add the same, agree with him, and I'm thinking even of what James said today, you know, we endure, we stay close, we stay available, we stay who we are in Christ so that over time when the last chapter happens, there has been opportunity not to draw the line and say, here, you're going to agree with I, what I agree or else. Um, that doesn't, I see what happens. I've seen what happened in the rest of my family where a line was drawn and I don't want to step over that line. But if I'm there saying this is who I am and this is why I love you and this is why I will continue to be who I am, that in the end will win. I'll share a real quick story. Just to, So my, my father-in-law is a pastor at a large church and they had Bob Goff, who was mentioned earlier, come and speak at their church. And so um, if you've ever met or interacted with him, he's kind of a, this really kind of goofy-ish. He comes off kind of goofy, you know, but yeah, I mean, he's this really serious, you know, devout Christian lawyer, you know, this really significant guy. But he was speaking at the church, and it was a large church, so they had three different services. And in between each service, he would go out into the parking lot with like a bucket of soap and like rags, and he would wash couple of people's cars in the parking lot at the church and it was like the goofiest weirdest strangest thing my father was like dude this guy is off the wall but i think his whole point of his book and and what he's trying to communicate is like find every opportunity you can to love somebody even if it's in something really small and i think if we could grab hold of that idea and bring that into our families you know and love them in ways that are just totally unexpected because our whole life is oriented in that way it's great witness, and it's it's more impactful than I think just like sharing words about why I believe the things that I believe. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, here we go. I I'm sorry. Well, Lisa. Go ahead, ask it. I'm He's letting us go because he doesn't see someone else has the microphone. <laughs> I'm sorry we're out of time. <laughs> Valid. Um, the Luke 8, 18 through 22 passage where Jesus is talking to the people and his mother and brother come up and say, hey, we want to talk to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, these people who are doing the will of the Lord, they are my mother and my brothers. Do you want to talk about church family or something like that? Just discuss it. Pastor theologian, James. <laughs> so uh, your question yeah, is yeah. like, how do we understand families in light of Jesus's teaching? Yeah. Um, the family yeah. is who does the will of the Father. Well, I, I think it's, uh, <clears throat> Jesus probably modeled this for us very well. I mean, and not only in that instance, but then going on from what we know of his life and what we know of how he felt about his mom, that he, he managed to hold these two realities in a beautiful and life-giving tension that, that he knew, and I think we all would hope to come to know that when we enter into faith, when we come into a relationship with Christ, that our brothers and sisters in that family of God take a, a primary role. They, they take a new place in our, our understanding of family, our understanding of relationship. I mean, I've, I've shared in the Lord's Supper with people in Russia and in Ethiopia that are as close to me and in some cases perhaps closer at times than I've been with my blood family people. And so to celebrate that. And, and I think at the same time that Jesus doesn't necessarily make that statement or that teaching as, and, and in other places, in the Sermon on the Mount, other places, makes it clear that we're never to love or be a part of the family of God uh, in such a way that it, it leads us to neglect or, or look down upon or to pull away from our, our uh, human family relationships. Um, so I think that the... the while the family of God takes great priority, I think Jesus would continue to send us 
and as he demonstrated in his own family, send us back into those relationships in life-giving and healthy ways. I'm not sure if that answers your question completely. Does anybody else want to add to it? Off the cuff without having studied the text. I would, I would think I would say, what I want to say is that Jesus is teaching. I think it's hard to parse out when Jesus is being like metaphorical, right? Like the parables or when he's being very literal. And I, I think uh, in that passage, I think he's being both. I mm-hmm. think one of the things that he's communicating is that there's a spiritual reality that is just as real as a physical reality that's being expressed. Mm-hmm. Is that as we we do the will of our Father, like we really are spiritually part of a family that we are supposed to have ultimate kind of commitment towards, um, and they are our primary relationships that that we have and exist in the world. Uh, I don't think that negates the reality that we have a physical family as well and that we're supposed to have a commitment to them. But I think Jesus is hinting at this spiritual truth about families um, and, and, and putting it on the level that is as significant as a physical reality that we are all aware of. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's what I want to say. Good. Thanks for your questions, everybody. Worship team, come on back here, would you? Aaron and Kyla, thank you so much. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love for us. God, thanks for the way that you have demonstrated and revealed that love in such precise and powerful ways. Again, as we said at the very beginning of the service, you loved us first through your son Jesus. And may we be so drawn into and transformed by that love, that it would begin to pour from us, to find expression, to be demonstrated in the relationships of our lives, beginning with those perhaps closest to us, our families. And God, I just know that if anyone's been sort of listening over the last few weeks, we've come to some level of conviction about our own family life because we all live in them that are far from perfect. And we need you, Jesus, to lead us and to help us. We know that... None of this is possible or attainable simply by our own means. And so, God, we invite you, knowing that you long for our families to flourish even more than we do and to become those sort of missional outposts in the world. God, we pray that you would come and do a beautiful work in us. And so, God, may we, even now, since the depth of your love, and may we be sent in that love as well.